0: Well, you've all, I'm sure, heard the conundrum presented by skeptics to the claim that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful. It comes in the form of a question. Can God make a rock so big that he cannot move it? The dilemma, then, is that if you say yes, then there is clearly something God cannot do. He can't move the rock that he's made. And if you say no, then there's also something which God cannot do. He cannot make such a rock. Now, this is really a silly objection. And just to be blunt, the answer is no, no. No, God cannot make a rock so big that he cannot move it. And by saying that, we are not denying or in any way undermining his omnipotence. Why? Well, for one thing, and this is a thing these objectors never seem to grasp. Right? For one thing, the Christian claim is about God's power is not God can do anything. There's numerous things God cannot do. There's a whole long list of them, right? He can't lie. He can't die. He can't be ignorant. He can't change. He can't suffer in his essence. He can't not fulfill his covenant. He can't create another God with all the same properties that he has. And we could go on and on. In short, God can't not be God. And a crucial part of who God is, as God, is one with sovereign control over all he makes. Which is why the hypothetical rock so big, God can't move it, cannot exist. It's no limitation on God that he can't be God, can't not be God. That he cannot be in a situation where the created order successfully thwarts or resists him. So, we are making an assertion that God's infinite perfection is inviolable. It can't be compromised even by God himself. But to understand this better, we need to understand God's power better, and that's our task this morning. And so we'll make the two points that are there in your bulletin on the outline. Omnipotence defined and omnipotence displayed. Defined and displayed. So first then, first then, omnipotence defined. What more precisely are we saying when we say God is omnipotent? Well, there's no better guide here than to keep going back, as we've been doing, to the shorter catechism. Question four. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power. Holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Thus God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his power. I mean, after all, what good would it do for God to be present everywhere without the power to act? Or for God to know all things without power? So his omnipresence and his omniscience and his omnipotence... They all belong together. They all imply each other. Or better, better, everything that we can say about God can be said of his power. And here I'll remind you of the Sermon on God's Unity, where we looked at the doctrine of divine simplicity. And we said there that all the attributes of God imply all the other attributes. Even more strongly, if you all recall, we said God does not, properly speaking, have attributes. He is his attributes. And in him, all the attributes are one and identical. So, let's state this with respect to his power. And this might sound strange to your ears. But God is his power. Strictly speaking, God does not have power He is power. Just like he is good, and he is love, and he is light, and he is holy. Again, this is the classical Christian doctrine. Hilary of Portier, a 4th century church father, said this, God being power, notice this is the way the fathers talk, God being power is not made up of things that are weak, Hilary says. In fact, in fact, The divine being is spoken of as power in the New Testament. We heard it in the gospel lesson that was just read. Jesus says to the high priest in Matthew 26, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Power is shorthand for God there. And you'll notice in your English Bibles, that that word power has a capital P. Because the translators understand that God is actually being called power in the text. There is no distinction. No distinction between God's power and his essence. He's unchangeably, infinitely, eternally powerful. And the power that God is and has refers to his power over creation. This is why we go back to that original rock question and we state no, because God cannot be overcome by his creation. In fact, if God were to create a rock so big that he couldn't move it, he would be impotent and not omnipotent. The doctrine says God can bring forth any effect outside of himself that he pleases. that his will is unthorable. We see this for example at the heart of the gospel when the angel speaks to a bewildered virgin Mary and says nothing will be impossible for God. Nothing is impossible properly defined for God. Or you can put this the other way around by Jesus speaking of salvation of the rich and he says with God all things are possible. Or think of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah says this. He says, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth and by your great power and your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. And nothing is too hard for God because nothing is hard for God. Occasionally, Cheryl will ask me a question. It's a sarcastic question. It goes something like this Was it too hard for you to put your dirty plate in the dishwasher? (laughs) And it's really tough to mount an argument that it was too hard. But it is hard, and it's not effortless. But nothing is too hard for God because nothing's hard for God at all. Everything he does, he does with effortless ease and delight. It's really important to grasp this. One Reformed theologian put it this way. It's as easy for God to create the world as it is for him to move a feather. It's as easy for God to uphold all things as it is to speak a word. When we talk about God's being omnipotent, we're saying God does not expend energy when he creates, or when he governs, or when he acts, or when he speaks. This inexhaustible power follows from God being an infinite spirit, from him being free of bodily limitations. Right? It's precisely our embodied existence, now burdened by sin, right, which is the reason that we grow tired. And that we need rest. And we have to spend one-third of our fleeting existence sleeping. We have to take breaks and naps. Our love and our service are profoundly limited because our power fades. Right? But the eternally self-existent God lives. And he lives his replete, his full, his unmeasured and unmeasurable life. And he lives it without ever experiencing a loss or a decline of any kind. There's no exertion in God. And this omnipotence is most frequently expressed in Holy Scripture by calling God the Almighty. God reveals himself as the Almighty to all the patriarchs, to Abraham, then again to Isaac, then again to Jacob. And repeatedly, this is the designation, right? In the Psalms, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High abides in the shadow of the Almighty. When he unveils himself to John in the book of Revelation, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. As one of the Puritans put it wittily, he said, One Almighty is greater than all mighties. One almighty is greater than all the mighties. So that's omnipotence defined, and now I want to look at it displayed. We see this omnipotence of God first and foremost, right? We see it in creation. We see it in the order and the beauty and the vastness of the created order. And this is why the creeds start with, notice, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. With a mere word, and God doesn't have a mouth, right? He doesn't literally speak or make noises. So when we say with a mere word, out of nothing, God creates, we mean something like, By merely thinking and willing, God creates the world. Right now, if we could do that, all my dishes would end up in the dishwasher. (laughs) By merely thinking, God wills the world into being. So the creation itself, Jeremiah says this also, is an act of elegant power and wisdom. It is he, the prophet Jeremiah says, who made the earth by his power and established the world by his wisdom. By his understanding, he stretches out the heavens. So this word is effortlessly effective. We heard that in the Old Testament lesson from Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, he spoke, and it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. And so we have before us a theater. Calvin calls the created order a theater of God's glory. It's a theater of God's power. Such that Isaiah looks at it and he he prophesies to Israel and says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings them out by their host, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. Because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. That same almighty power, then, that creates, also sustains the creation, upholds the creation. The Son, through whom the Father speaks his word and creates the world, that Son, Hebrews 1 tells us, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, it's not merely the cosmos, its existence, although that's an extraordinary testimony to God's infinite power. But it's not just the cosmos and its existence. It's also the fact, the stunning fact, that it's maintained in being that testifies to God's omnipotence. In him, Colossians 1 says, in Christ, all things hold together. So that, you know, the coherent, integrated unity of the universe, the fact that it doesn't just disintegrate or break up into pieces, is due to the power of Christ. In him, all things consist or hold together. Every galaxy, every star, every nation, every person, every atom is kept in being by this power. Unceasing splendor. Here's Catherine Rogers. She's a Christian. She's a professor of uh, philosophy at the University of Delaware. She says this. God's omnipotence entails that everything that has any sort of being at all besides God is kept in existence from moment to moment by God's causal power. We actually saw that in the psalm we sung. There's a line in there about all that borrows life from you, being held in being. So she continues and says this, Since God's power is his knowledge, notice that. Why does she say that? Well, because she's a classical theist. If you're a classical theist, you can say things like, God's power is his knowledge, God's knowledge is his power, God's X is his Y because all the attributes imply the other attributes. So she goes on and says, since God's power is his knowledge, whatever is, is because it is being thought by God right now. Whatever is, is because God is thinking it right now. Should God stop thinking of us for even an instant, we would cease to be. This providential power this power, effortless, infinite, and eternal, right? Mysteriously, it doesn't compete with. You might feel threatened by it, perhaps. But it doesn't compete with or negate our creaturely powers. In Aquinas' language, it's because God moves us that we move. Right? In Paul's language, in him, and Paul here means by his power, in his power, We live and move and have our being. There's not a single movement, think about that, of a single atom that is not a demonstration of God's power. So I want to unpack this a little bit further, this power and providence I'm calling it. It pertains not only to holding all being and all motion and all things in existence, it extends especially then to God's care for you. Right Here's the lovely Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth, that God, that Almighty One. And then the psalmist continues, he will not let your foot be moved. There's providence. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He doesn't have to waste a third of his day sleeping. He doesn't slumber. This is God's almighty power, but it's directed to you, right? What the psalmist is saying is this is the inexhaustible, undistracted, tender, fatherly alertness of God to you, to your situation, to your needs even when you're not looking, or you forget, or you drift away. It's a beautiful thing. And so Isaiah also speaks of God and his protecting power. Right? In the famous passage where he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Right? There's the power of the creator. But he goes on to say, He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Right? There's, there's God, strong and mighty, free from all bodily limitations. And what's the result, Isaiah says? What's the result of this for us? Here's the result. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Omnipotence is a comforting doctrine. It's the source of your real Though limited, strength. The arms underneath you are not only everlasting arms, they are almighty arms. Now, we could rehearse here the whole history of Israel and the history of the church. Right? The one who is almighty has power and authority to act and has acted decisively in history. Right? At the Exodus, at the Red Sea, what does is Israel sing? The song at the sea is this, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So, we've spoken a little bit about this omnipotence displayed in creation and displayed in providence. But there's one more thing to say, and it's an important thing. It's the capstone. This omnipotence, is supremely and surprisingly and paradoxically displayed in your redemption in Jesus Christ. The mighty arm of God is revealed before the nations as an infant. Conceived in the womb of Mary. It was, we are told, the power of the Most High which overshadowed her. So in the fullness of time, Omnipotence comes in the form of shocking weakness and vulnerability. And, you know, Mary sings in her Magnificat of the baby in her womb that through God made flesh, through God made weak, all the opposing powers will be overthrown. Her pregnancy, she says, is a manifestation of the strength of his arm. So here we have a scandal. This is not how you expect the story to come to its climax if you're just starting with omnipotence and reading all the Old Testament texts on the power of God. We'd expect this almighty, all-powerful, effortlessly sovereign God to show up and just, you know, take care of business effortlessly. But somehow that's just not the way the story goes. He's going to enter into our weakness and into our brokenness. Into our impotence. And this is a stumbling block to the Jews. Who? They didn't conceive of power in this form. Right? You You had all those texts, right, from the Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's somewhat shocking that power shows up this way. And it's foolishness to the Greeks They couldn't stomach an embodied crucified God. But Paul says, oh, well, this is a weakness of God, for sure. But it's a weakness which is stronger than men. He was crucified in weakness, Paul says. Raised in glory. So he bears our weakness and our sin and our shame. He doesn't obliterate it. He doesn't remove it by totalitarian force. But he is going to raise it up in glory in the resurrection by the power of his great might, Paul says. And so this is a surprising conclusion to the story. You're used to it, of course. Christ moves then from a kind of omnipotence which is covered in weakness and shame to glorious, radiant omnipotence. And we must experience God's power. And here's the point, right? We must experience God's power in the same way. In the same sequence. There can be no chest thumping for us when it comes to God's power. It is in this age found in the way of the cross. This is part of what the already not yet means. Unlike Jesus... We are not past the suffering and the cross and fully in glory. He is, but we're not. So cross and resurrection overlap mysteriously for us in this age. So we heard in the New Testament lesson from 2 Corinthians, when Paul pleads about the thorn in his flesh, God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, here's the New Testament statement on power for the church. My power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness is not going away. And notice, weakness is not the prelude to power. That's not what Paul says. Weakness is the location of power. Cruciformity is not just a prelude to resurrection. It is the shape of Christian existence until the end. Therefore, Paul says this. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, plural, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, this is really not what we want, right? Right? <laughs> We want the power of God to eliminate our weaknesses. In fact, a great deal of frustration in the Christian life comes from the fact that that doesn't often happen, according to the script we'd like. We keep carrying about these weaknesses. So, power. It's really important. Listen to the Apostle. Power in the Christian life does not displace weakness. It manifests itself in and through weakness. If you don't want weakness in this age, you can't have power. It's really shocking. Paul says in Philippians that it's in conformity to the death of Christ that we taste the power of his resurrection. We tend to think these are two different things. It's in cruciformity with Christ, in being assimilated to his cross, That we find the mystery of God's power in this age. And it's that power that's even now, the apostle says, even now at work in us. So the gospel that we embrace is the power of God unto salvation. Under the sign, under the shadow of the cross, we are already partaking of the power of the resurrection. Because we're in the hands of this omnipotent God. God has not, Paul says, given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love and self-control. So we know, right? We know in all of our weaknesses, in the face of all opposition, not only underneath and all around us are these everlasting almighty arms, but we know this we know greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So it turns out that omnipotence enfolds us. it's, It's tender omnipotence. It enfolds you in your weakness, in your frailty, in your brokenness. And it manifests the splendor of God in that weakness, the power of God. Even now, we see that power So we say with the Apostle Paul, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is now at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.